Hey everyone, welcome back to SEO Convergence. Tom and I are back again, and today we have a little bit of a repeat. We had a guest on with us that we had so much fun talking to, and we actually had a conversation after we were done recording, and it was so interesting that Tom had asked her to come back and talk about it with everyone else. So, Tom, who are we welcoming back today? Gina Flores. Gina, thank you so much for being with us again. As Mike said, our last conversation was so enriching for me, and I hope our listeners. And then to the very tail end, I I think I asked you a question around uh, the polarization. And that's your word. That's not mine, but it's a beautiful word that is describing what's happening in our nation. And it's describing what's happening in our school boards, particularly for us all personally here in southeastern Pennsylvania. We're not the only area. It's across the country. But we're finding that polarization. So, Gina, can you take us back to the evolutionary roots of us human beings choosing up sides of the of the, you know, the beginnings of these political roots. Can you take us back and and teach our listeners and teach me? Yeah, so this is a really important topic. I'm glad we're going to have the time to talk about it, Um, especially as a social studies teacher. These are some of the overarching themes that I try to weave into what we're talking about um, so that we can understand how polarization, it's somewhat natural. It's somewhat a part of... Um, being human on the planet Earth. And so essentially, uh, human beings form groups, right? That's nothing that's that's really mind-shattering to anybody, right? But we form groups to have competitive advantages. And so you could go into really deep political theory or, or government theory as to why we have um, specific political parties. But essentially, the political parties that we have um, help us as human beings to feel safe, that's why people support them. Um, and so really it gives, you join whatever party you feel would give you that competitive advantage um, in a survival-based society. Um, that's how we were born as humans. As humans, when we um, stopped hunting and gathering and we started to come together in society to form agriculture, we did the same thing. We created hierarchy. We created groups. Um, we strategized in order to survive. Tell me is a couple of things that have already triggered for me. Use the word safe. We choose groups. And I understand the competitive advantage piece. And I want to explore that road in a minute. But we choose groups that allow us to feel safe. Can you bring us into this place? What's happening in our psychology? What's going on? So, okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I get, I want to feel safe in my cave. I want to feel safe with my fire. I, I get that, but now evolve us a little bit more. Yeah, so as we advance forward in society, we now know that politics have a whole lot to do with you having access to the food that you eat and the homes that you have and the communities that we live in. Um, you know, as society evolved, I mean, that's a that's a whole great big world history course that you would take to to see this evolution of how we formed groups and how we industrialized. But essentially the the root social component is we wanna make sure that we have what we need to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And so as our society became more and more specialized, even governance became specialized, right? And so 
people that are making those decisions to make sure that we have access to food, water, shelter, and all of those things that we need, um, we started to align ourselves with groups and with people that make sure that we have access to those resources. And we could get into how um, majority minority culture has not always treated groups and people equally and how when there is majority culture, um, you know, when you can align yourself with that, it has a whole lot to do with when we talk about, for example, um, racism. And when we talk about groups of people that because there are more of them in those groups, they maintain their own safety. And so it, it comes about where those people um, oftentimes commit acts of atrocity and 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 do other things to deny resources to other groups of people and it really comes down to this this competition this perceived mm. competition because when people feel unsafe they do whatever necessary to ensure they have access to the resources they perceive to be safe now the key word here is perception yes right that the the fear and the thought that there is not enough and the way that society runs things, there oftentimes the distribution, there is not enough or the, the way things are divided, um, it isn't even and it isn't fair. And again, that goes back to the outsourcing of politics. I want to explore this idea of competitive advantage and competition and aligning ourselves with those thought groups, those practices that we think will give us an advantage. The, the studies that I've done, gosh, could be the past 20 years, it could be more. I, I see that the, I'm going to use the terminology, I could be wrong, uh, that, a, that a, a slightly higher evolved human being is in fact not going to compete. Uh, they're going to be empathetic, they're going to be compassionate, uh, they're going to strive to, to to see, help people see perception, help people see that in fact there is enough. There's enough for all of us. Uh, so, am I completely off base, or is that a place we can get to? I think it is a place we can get to. And the person that you're talking about and speaking of is the person that's thinking with their prefrontal cortex, right? That's the person that um, feels safe. And so they are able to engage in empathy and they are able to include others and they are able to lead. However, the person who's backed into the corner is going to have a really, really hard time to do that because they're the ones that initially are in the, the fight, flight, freeze response. And so when you're under fire and you feel under attack, it, it comes down to a matter of what you perceive to be survival, um, personal survival for yourself and then for your family and for those that you keep close. And then it kind of expands on outwards to then your community and then, you know, on outwards from there. When you are somebody who is using and able to use your logical brain, which you access through your prefrontal cortex, you can sequence time, right? You can sequence um, other people and context to situations. You can sequence and understand history. You can't do that when you're in a threatened state. So there are folks that clearly are physically threatened. And then there are folks that are threatened in their own perception. It may be real, it may not. Is that true? Yeah, so a lot of it might have to do with intergenerational trauma. Um, the way that your, 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 your genes are passed and your epigenetics, the way your genes are turned on or off, um, the cultural programming you receive from the time that you are young, the programming you receive within your family or within your community um, has a whole lot to do with trauma that may not have even have happened to you being passed on. Again, we see this a lot of times in terms of like 
uh, Native American groups or African Americans in the United States um, that have over time been marginalized and been treated a certain way where um, just from observing what happens in the media, you oftentimes can feel under threat even if something isn't directly happening to you. And then once you're in that situation, you're going to have a really hard time um, having putting context to the situation. It, it's a really, um, you're, you're almost fighting biology to do so. So I get in my head and in my heart uh, the generational trauma of the African-American, the Native American, uh, many minorities that currently are coming to this country and really traveling across the world looking for a safe place. I get that. But help me understand What's going on in the head and the heart of, of the individual who is saying things like, we shouldn't be teaching racism. We shouldn't be teaching slavery. Um, the things like, um, uh, what did I hear the other night? Um, white privilege is attacking me. Not not me, not me, Tom Stecker, but the, the speaker at the time. White privilege is saying you're going to take something away from my children to give to other children. Bring, bring, bring me into that mindset. Yeah. And so remember that um, these individuals and these families have grown up seeing the sacrifices that that their families have made. Right. And so a lot of people like will say, well, my family worked really, really hard for everything that we have. And, and it feels threatening that um, somebody would be trying to discount that or take that personal sacrifice mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens a lot of times, for example, a really a really good example that I hear often um, is when somebody says, well, we don't want immigrants coming to this country and taking our jobs. There's a perception that there, there are not enough jobs. Right. Whether that's true or not, that really depends on your political affiliation and, sure. and what kind of jobs you feel you, there should be. Um, However, if you feel at all threatened that someone's going to come in and take your way of life, this is the way of life that my ancestors have been here fighting for, or, you know, this is the, this is the same, the same street that we have always lived on. Our family has always lived here, or, um, it, you know, this is the, I, my family has owned a construction business or a restaurant business or whatever it is that we have owned in this part of the city. And now new people are coming in and they want to do things in a different way. That's threatening. So how do we help bridge what I see as a growing gap? We have folks in fear and uh, trying to survive, and they're dealing with generations of pain. And we have folks, I believe, in fear because we have generations of working so hard to get to this point. How do we help bridge the gap? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly the crux of the situation. And I think that what's making the polarization actually worse is the media and the way that we handle issues like this. Um, If you were to go onto YouTube right now and you were to search up, I don't know, a topic like vegetarianism, the way that um, those those systems are programmed, the next video you're going to automatically be shown is about veganism because they know if they show you something on topic, but something slightly more extreme, you're going to be drawn into clicking that, right? Mm. So you fall right into the rabbit hole. Mm. And so the way that everything is a click culture, right? The way that um, 
we we pay we don't pay for things anymore even like the news media they they receive money and income from our attention everything is attention based and so they make things slightly more extreme slightly more extreme you see it on social media and and a lot of our younger um our students and our younger americans are not using like for example, Channel 6 News, right? They're getting their information via social media, via the internet, via YouTube, via all of these online platforms that are specifically geared towards inciting fear. Say, or it, specifically, again. Say it again. Yeah, so all of our um, our media, especially on the internet, because everything is customizable and everything is attention-based and the way that people make money is by getting your attention. That means they are specifically incentivized towards promoting extremism, polarization, fear. And, we're and not we're talking about common ground. We're not trying to get people. That's not the goal of the media. The right. goal is not to have common conversation. It is to drive people away from each other. What part of our brain are they focused on? They're trying to incite the uh, the amygdala response, the fight, flight, freeze, the, oh uh, my gosh, panic. Okay. And, and now, now, at least my perception is it's everywhere. It is. And that's why, in, in especially in terms of education, one of the things that we can do boots on the ground is media literacy, understanding Wonderful. what is true, how you look at information, how you fact check information, um, understanding and just having that knowledge that no matter what side you are on, the goal of the media is to push you farther towards the extreme mm. and, and being able to have these conversations with each other that we don't have to agree on everything, but the farther we go out towards the extremes, the less we're going to be able to fight that biological response. And that's what becomes really, really difficult. It's almost like we need to try to understand a topic like from both, not only from both perspectives, but we need to consciously do it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really important job of a, of a social studies educator and of all educators. Sometimes you don't even realize that the information that's being given is biased in one way or another because the link you gave was perfectly fine. However, the three videos that we're going to show after it are quite alarming. So how do we help clearly our students, but all of us, how do we help folks become more media literate and... Do you have recommendations on uh, the most responsible or respectful, well-balanced sources to go to? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I think we really need a trauma-informed approach to not only education, but really like to governance. I think a lot of our political leaders would really benefit from learning about the brain. Um, and then, of course, our media outlets. Yeah. I don't know that there's ever going to be an unbiased media outlet. I think that the key important component here is balance and, and really being mindful of going down the rabbit hole. Because I mean, how many, how many people can sit and you're going to watch one video and then one hour later, you just watch seven videos. That's a really, really dangerous thing. And, and one of the reasons why that happens is like I said, it's all about you, you don't pay for services you get, you know, it's for attention. So and I mean, a possible solution could be that, you know, paying for like, for example, the New York Times is a very reputable source. And a lot of times in order to gain access to that, you have to pay for that. Well, just because you paid for that article, they're no longer as incentivized to do something to get your attention because they're not making money as much like they're not dependent on the pay per click. They made money because you subscribed. So it, it almost comes down to a, a choice in society of are we going to continue down this path where things are free, 
like quote unquote free, but really what we're selling is our attention and we're selling our availability for bias. And a lot of times it's like advertising when you watch a commercial on the TV, you don't realize you're being, you're, they're influencing you, but they are influencing you. The other issue that comes about when we talk about this, well, what about, you know, socioeconomic um, status, right? What about people who can't pay? I don't know, whatever the fee is, $10 a month for the New York Times. What do we do about things like that? Um, so it's not a clear cut, you know, here's the 100% the answer, but it's, it's really a bigger societal issue that educators or even people who are mediating community groups, the important component here is we say, hold on, what about the balance? What about, um, you know, hearing and seeing both sides? And when you feel really, really triggered, it takes a, it takes a lot of openness to say, you know, why, why am I really being defensive right now? Where, where am I coming from? What is threatening? And that's that trauma-informed approach that the more we spread the information about what does it mean when you're feeling threatened and what is that biological response to your polyvagal nerve, the more that we understand that within our groups and within our communities, the more we can say, okay, the fact that I want to have an argument right now is because I feel threatened and that's a normal response. That's how I am biologically programmed to feel because at one point in time, this is how I survived. So I'm going to ask, we have three educators here. Yourself, high school social studies teacher, Mike, the elementary special education teacher, and myself doing professional development and teaching at the university level. Give us, a, give us a couple important pieces to really focus on with students, with colleagues. Okay, so I feel like if we're talking about a social emotional approach, um, that's just something that, you know, we're talking about incorporating in every single way and in every single aspect. And the more that you, even as a young kid, like if you teach the, teach the brain model in your hand, the more that you, like a kid understands, oh, I flipped my lid, right? I flipped my, my prefrontal cortex is offline. You don't have to have a, a super, super in-depth understanding. And then when you get to middle school and high school and beyond, your understanding is more in-depth. I've had conversations with kids and I'll be sitting there and we'll be talking about something and I'll just move my hand like that. And it's a symbol. It's like, okay, things are getting rather heated at the moment. Everyone has flipped their lid and it's just, it puts things back into perspective. So there's, there's that kind of education that needs to happen. Um, there's the education around evaluating our sources and making sure that we have balanced perspectives and balanced information. And the younger the kids are, I would say that really falls more on the onus of the teachers, the adults, um, who are curating that information. And then you want to model literally how you are doing that for kids as they are getting older so that they don't sit and watch YouTube for four hours and fall down that rabbit hole and come out thinking that this extreme view of life is where they've ended. And so that must be the end all be all. So when we were talking previous podcasts towards the end, uh, we talked about polarization and we talked about uh, the left and right. And, and you gave me some beautiful examples uh, that I thought were really essential. Uh, you talked about gatekeepers and you talked about, uh, I, I remember dreamers or, 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 or uh, visionaries. I, I'm not sure. Can you, can you bring me back into that part of the conversation? Yeah. So 
So one thing that I always teach as a social studies concept, but really it's important for everybody is the political spectrum, right? And so you have the moderates in the middle, you have the conservatives on one end, usually we call them the right, and you have the liberals on the other end, the, the progressives, usually we call that the left. And the farther you get out from the middle, the more and more extreme that you would be speaking about. Um, they each have a role. So the conservatives, the farther you go along there, their job and the way that you know, conservatism has evolved within a society is to keep, you know, group order in the conversation. We couldn't have anarchy, right? There is value in having hierarchy and having structure and having a path and a way of doing things that in itself keeps everybody safe. Now, liberals, on the other hand, what they keep in conversation, they keep, you know, the fact that we do need to keep with the times, things need to change. Uh, we do need to keep progressing. We do need to keep growing. We are evolving as a species, right? And so both of those components of, of, you know, conservatism and liberalism help us to come together and move forward safely as a species. They are both very evolutionarily healthy. And when you kind of get farther out on the ends of the spectrum, those people aren't wrong. They are the gatekeepers, right? If somebody is, is conservative and is, and is saying, hey, I feel threatened, right? If they are saying, I feel threatened, that there's something going on in society where they are saying there's, there's a lack of order here that's making me or this group of people feel unsafe. What happens when we go too far to the left is they're throwing up their hand and saying, hold on, there's something about a lack of change here that is going to eventually hurt our society and our civilization. Both of those things are valid. What's been going on recently with polarization is that both people are throwing their hands up at the same exact time. And that is what's difficult and concerning. It's pretty normal in, in throughout history that you see us swinging between conservative and liberal kind of back and forth, right? And whenever we get too far, a group of people on either end will say, hold on, right? There are gatekeepers. Hold on, we've gone too far one way or the other way. But when both sides are, are saying, hold on, we feel threatened at the same exact time, that's how we know we've got an information issue. We've got an issue with the information that's being disseminated. We've got an issue with the lack of empathy that's going on and with the way that we're communicating with each other. Because if both groups are feeling threatened, that means there's a whole lot of lack in the middle, which is where real progress is really going to happen. So how do we get to that middle ground? It all centers on conversation. I mean, you could even look in Congress, right? Like you can look at you know, how Congress used to be far less polarized and the number of bills that were passed during certain decades or certain time periods under, or under you know, different political times versus the argumentation and the way that things are played out right now. Now, laws are not meant to be easy to pass. There's a reason for that. We don't want things to just happen just like that because, you know, we might do something on a whim. That would be the progressives' dream all night long, right? They want change, 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 and the conservatives want very little change. However, neither one of them are really getting what they want right now, yeah. and that's the problem. Another piece, that, as you were sharing with us, you presented those two sides in a very logical, front-brain, transparent way. It would be wonderful if somebody that disagreed with me could tell me, I'm feeling threatened right now, Tom. Then, then I, I, I would say, how can I help? But that's not happening. We're getting a lot of screaming and yelling and, and uh, threatening. And it's not only happening at a national level, it's happening at a local level. Well, and it's because I, I think it's this key component that 
just now are we starting to introduce social emotional learning into schools, into, into communities, into our conversations where people aren't necessarily aware that they're triggered or why they're triggered or what's going on. There hasn't been that emotional exploration within ourselves so that when we come to the table to talk politics, we understand fully where we're coming from, what our triggers are and what's true and what's not true. I am fully aware that you know, in my identity within society, there are things that will trigger me. And there are things that will trigger me that might be reality and it's really what's going on. And there are other things that might trigger me that are not realistically a threat. Like we respond as if there's a tiger sitting right in front of us because that's our evolutionary, you know, cue. However, eight times out of 10, there's, there's nine times out of 10, nine and a half times out of 10, there's no yeah. tiger sitting right in front of you. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, there are some threats that are very much real that are not a tiger sitting in front of you. If someone's trying to take your housing, your food, whatever it is that you need, you need to survive, that is very much threatening. However, a lot of times that, that isn't what's happening either. Um, and so we, we lose ourselves in these emotional reactions that we are not to blame for. We are biologically programmed to do just exactly that. However, self-awareness, which I know is a major component of SEL, would really, a lot of work around self-awareness would prepare us to have more productive conversations. So as I'm listening to you, and I thank you so much for bringing up self-awareness as the key. That's the beginning point to all of this work. Uh, I, I don't know how we can impact the adult population except to continue to be decent models, to be kind, empathetic. But our, I believe our, our power is with impacting our students, helping them sort out, uh, you know, to be good consumers of media, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's valid, uh, helping them reflect and be mindful, uh, particularly developing that self-awareness piece, uh, what are what are your thoughts about our students? I think uh, our students are very very capable of this, and I think sometimes what scares us as teachers can be sometimes the backlash that we're going to get if a student says this or a student says that. And and my perspective has always been, well, those are the conversations that we exactly need to be having mm. because. Obviously, we don't want our students to say anything that is offensive or hurtful or, or, you know, we don't want that. However, I don't want my student to leave my classroom at the end of the year thinking, gosh, well, that's really what I think. And I just didn't say it because I knew it wasn't going to be received as correct. And now I'm going to go out into the world and go on to college, into the workforce. And I'm still going to sit here silently thinking that silence is like this breeding ground of. Um, I think what what contributes to this polarization, we definitely need to help students with giving them the language and giving them the wording to help them to express their true feelings so that we can hash this stuff out before we get to, you know, we're sitting in Congress or we're sitting in our local community meetings making decisions. So let me bring you to a place. Let's create a little scenario. Uh, I hire you as a consultant to help me deal with a school board that split, Uh, you know, the the split that you just shared with us, the the left-right split. And and, and it's been contentious and it's been difficult for over a year. And we've also had the pandemic, which hasn't, which was also created more conflict. Tell me from a facilitator's point of view, from a professional development point of view, 
how would you help? Yeah, I mean, I think you teach the amygdala, you teach the threat response, you give a little bit of a, you know, a content burst, you give some knowledge. And then I think that the participants of the workshop would sit through and work through, you know, the self-awareness component that I think is like you're saying the beginning, what is my identity and what threatens me, what triggers me associated with each of these different components of my identity. And, you know, beyond, you could really take this as far as long as you had to do it. Right. So if I am uh, a female and something that triggers me is Oh gosh, it could be any, for example, work-based pay or, uh, you know, women not being discussed in a history social studies class or any of these things, whatever it is that I identify that would trigger me, how does that follow through and whatever it is, if we're talking about a school board, how does that play out in curriculum? So what are, what are, you know, three things that would come up in a conversation that's going to automatically trigger me? And compare in the group, it's it's kind of hard to, I'm I'm one of those teachers that um, I have a plan, but I also kind of go with what the group is doing. But um, yeah, like how, how do those things line up? Do we have three men and, and eight women? Do we have four African-Americans and one white woman and four Hispanic people? You know, it, it really, like, what does that group need sure. so that we can get to some kind of understanding of, gosh, I had no idea that when we talk about the period of reconstruction, that automatically is going to be a trigger for you. Mm-hmm. Or I had no idea that when we talk about, you know, World War II, or we talk about, you know, communism or people fighting in war that you're a veteran and that's going to be a trigger for you. And it just, it just cues people in on not only you start with your own self-awareness and then you start to be aware of what other people are going through and having empathy. Um, And you can, and then you could have like a mock conversation. All right, we're going to talk about this unit of reconstruction and bearing in mind, these are the triggers of these certain people. You know, how can we structure this conversation? This is clearly not once and done work. This no. is ongoing work. No, but I do think there is that that big first component of understanding that we are biologically programmed to threat, to, yeah. to respond to I threat. Love, yeah, it's and so I think important. That's, that's a major, like that's a, all of a sudden that's a different paradigm, I think. And, and understanding, okay, I feel threatened. I might not know what to do with that. I'd much rather have somebody who has a little bit of trepidation, but has good intention. Mm-hmm rather than opposed to somebody who is already fired up, they're already angry, they're already yelling. Yeah. I mean, once we can get to a point of calm, there are a lot of people who can facilitate good conversation, right? right? right. It's it's getting us to that point of calm and realizing, wow, I was reacting from a state of threat. Yeah. I think that's a challenge right now. Can we get to that point of calm? Right. It's a major challenge. Mike, as a as an educator, special educator, getting ready to head back to school in a few weeks, how is all this resonating with you? What's coming up for you as you listen? Well, I'm trying to see how you can take um, this information and make it something that you can address with someone who's younger. Uh, I see things like this every day, especially with like pop culture. So kids are very, um, at least the, the ones that I've worked with, are very quick to make snap judgments based on what they see on social media. Uh, and a lot of the times they have access to uh, content that's beyond where they're at mature maturity wise. So trying to navigate that with them and not make it such a, like may, not make it feel like policing where anytime they bring up like, Oh, this, this popular influencer said this. And then I'd say, well, wait a minute. 
And like, let's, let's look at that and see how truthful that is. Or is there a different perspective to this? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times that they, I think students get defensive about things like that, mm-hmm. especially when it's something that they think or perceive that they know a lot about already and they get very defensive about it. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, what, what fun ways or contrived situations can you bring up to, to have them start to think that way and to self-assess when they're, when they're introduced to, to different content or um, different ideas that might not be a whole picture. It might just be one perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think what's really interesting about what you brought up is I think that a lot of our younger students are very rightfully and naturally so influenced by their parents. And so while their parents might be feeling the threat of losing their home, losing their food, whatever, whatever resources, I don't know that depending on the specific child that the child necessarily understands that connection, mm-hmm. right? They just see, oh, my parent believes this way and this is the way it is. And how this is how they respond through their physiology. So this is how I respond. They respond defensively. I mirror that. I mimic that. I respond defensively. And so I think we have a really, really kind of amazing opportunity right there because those students are responding out of mimicry, not out of, in most cases, I don't think legitimate threat. And Mm -hmm. so their minds actually might be a little bit more open to seeing that other side and being able to have that empathy because they're, they're, like I said, they're, they're mimicking. They're not necessarily, in my opinion, triggered. I, I don't know. Like I said, it's different on every single student's, you know, case, but if you have, for example, simulations designed in your social studies class or curriculum or whatever it is you were going to do where those students had to take on that perspective you're almost kind of like tricking them like if I was teaching the colonization of Africa and I gave everybody a different country and I said well you know how come how come you know Belgium treated the people this way at the end you're talking about all of this and you know they don't realize that like well how come it's okay to treat other groups of minorities in this exact way, right? Well, how does that relate to what's going on in current events today? So that's kind of the idea of teaching history. Mm -hmm. And especially at that younger age when they might not be having that threat response, you have such a powerful ability to impact their perception of current events through showing, well, how did we handle this in the past? What do you think about that? Well, do you realize that that's really similar to what's going on right now? I want to go back to media as a social studies educator, really working with young adults every single day. Where do you go for a well-balanced, responsible source of information? Oh, man. Um, I I really try to like go far and wide. Um, And a lot of times I will have them bring information to me, very similar to uh, what Mike was saying is that they they already have in mind what they think their version of the truth is. And so a lot of times I don't, I start with what they bring me and I kind of will go from there. And a lot of times, just based on the demographics of who's in the classroom, I will have opposing perspectives. 
I really, really like to try to find something in the middle. The New York Times is really, really good for that. And one reason I believe that to be the case is because a lot of their articles are paid articles. Mm -hmm. And again, we get into how that can really disproportionately impact those who might not be of socioeconomic status to afford access to those kind of resources. Or we have, you know, in our school databases, we have like EBSCOhost and things such as that. Um, but I find that any of these, like these news reporting agencies are almost always biased. And so if I'm going to use one of them, I will almost always use the counterpart. If I'm using Fox News, I'm going to use MSNBC. I'm going to show both sides of it and say, okay, so what are the commonalities between these two stories? How are they the same and how are they different? I have literally had them fill out a Venn diagram on this. Is this even the same event? Like, can we even, can we, if you were to watch one thing, would you have known? I've had them do before, which is really, really interesting. Read them one news article story. It could be something about history or something, you know, related to the current events, or it could be something like I did like a volcano one time. And I was like, all right, draw for me on a piece of paper what it is that happened. And then I went to another news source and I read this from the same event, but they didn't know it was the same event. And I got totally different pictures of what has happened. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay, so this is the exact reason. They might be true facts. They might not be true facts, but even if you choose I don't know, six out of 100 true facts, and you only tell those six, and the other side chooses six different six out of those 100 true facts, and they only tell those true facts, you end up with totally different perceptions of what has happened because there are so many other facts that were left out of this entire story. So let me begin to close our time with this question. What would be your recommendations, Gina? How, how can we begin in the school system? to begin to close the gap or begin to close the perceived gap? So I said last time connection first, and, and I'm gonna stick with that because if you can't, and it's not, I'm not just even speaking a connection between you know, yourself and the students. It, it has to be a whole classroom environment, a whole connection between everybody. And one of the ways that I do that is I really empower them you know, as soon as I can from day one with everybody having a role, everybody having a job, everybody contributing. Um, you know, when we do simulations, everybody gets a part and everybody gets a different part, you know, each different time. And you're always kept on your toes and you're asked to be vulnerable and share. I have to be vulnerable and share first. Usually that's how, how we do this. But if we're talking about something that happened in the distant past, it's less threatening. And then we trust each other. We all work through this together. We were all down in the trenches problem solving. And now we look at, well, how does that relate to what's going on today? And by the time we've gotten there, we've gotten this whole classroom community that's been built to where people are willing to be a little bit vulnerable because they've already seen it through a couple different perspectives. So we have to build that safe, emotionally safe, trusting community to even begin to explore this topic. As soon as somebody is threatened, you've lost them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. I really, really appreciate you being with us again. Mike, thank you so much for coordinating all this. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, friends.